Hello, everybody. You're listening to Nashville Demystified. I'm your host, Alex Steed. Nashville Demystified is typically a show in which I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. We're in the middle of this mini-series called Music City Tales from the 1980s. This is a companion episode that goes deeper into some of the stuff we covered in last week's exploration of Lower Broad. Next week, we'll run part two of that episode, but for now, we're going to talk about sex work during the Civil War, and then we're going to share some unbelievable tales about the classic Cat 2 that was, until the late 90s, Nashville's longest-running and probably most storied strip club. Um, In this series... In Music City Tales, like I said, we talk about uh, Lower Broad, as we did in the last episode. We talk about TNN and Opryland and uh, uh, a number of other just big, (laughs) big dramatic tales from the city. I hope that you will check it out if you haven't already. And if you have, let me know how it's going for you. Check us out on social media. Um, We're on Twitter, uh, Facebook, Instagram, etc., and I'd love to hear how it's going for you. But first, before we get into the subject matter of this episode, I should tell you that Nashville Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a video and content production house with offices here in the city, and it's distributed by We Own This Town. We Own This Town is a network of Nashville-based podcasts, and all the shows are great. Its titular show is focused on the best new music coming out of Nashville today. Uh, that's, that's not country music. And host Michael Eads had me on earlier this week to co-host an episode that was inspired by this very miniseries. Uh, He played for me the, quote, alternative and underground music from the 1980s, Nashville, and it was a ton of fun. Uh, There were some really great bands in the city at that time. Michael and I had a lot of fun putting that episode together. Okay, so as I said at the top of the show, I wanted to expand upon two topics from our last episode, the first being legal prostitution in Nashville during the Civil War, the other being a handful of anecdotes about the classic cat, which was a strip club on Lower Broad. Beyond the topic of sex work, uh, these two things are not really related. They're just areas I wanted to dive into further, uh, but didn't have the space to do so in the last episode, and also because I'm hyper-focused on the 1980s, and obviously the Civil War happened before that. <laughs> One, Several of the anecdotes about the classic cat did as well, but I really wanted to make sure that they were told. I wanted to get into the prostitution thing regarding the Civil War. Uh, I mentioned it a bit in the Lower Broad episode, talking about overlapping geographies of what was going on during the Civil War and what was going on in the 1980s on Lower Broad. I wanted to get into prostitution uh, during the Civil War because I know a lot of folks from Nashville casually know that it was once legal here, but that's usually about as far as it goes. I wanted to dive into it further because it's both educational and sort of wildly fascinating, and maybe not for the reasons you might expect. I wanted to say right up front that I'm pulling heavily from an article written by Angela Serratore for the Smithsonian Magazine. I strongly encourage you to check out that article. It's better than what's here. It's just, it's glorious. It's so well-researched and so well-written. And it's hard to believe, in a way. So during the time of the Civil War, a prostitute can make about $5 a week, which is about the equivalent of $100 a day. And this was about three times more than she could make sewing or taking on other domestic labor. Many Civil War era women were faced with the inevitability of sex work in one way or another, as necessities were out of reach on the salaries of the enlisted men who were out fighting the war. And many women 
who engaged in sex work would sell sex here and there when money was low and they could evade attention from friends and family. And others would actually enter the sex trade full time after, after the war was over. According to the U.S. Census, Nashville was home to 198 white prostitutes and nine uh, who were referred to as, quote, mulatto. What is now First Ave to about Fourth Ave was known as, quote, Smoky Row. This was a red light district where brothels operated to, quote, entertain farmers and merchants uh, coming through the area. In just two years' time, that number would grow to nearly 1,500 The Union troops had arrived and occupied Nashville, and many of them enjoyed frequenting brothels. The boom in business had not gone unnoticed by leader of the Union's Army of the Cumberland, General William Rosencrantz. Rosencrantz was aware that incidents of the sexually transmitted infections, syphilis, and gonorrhea were becoming almost as dangerous to soldiers as combat. At least 8.2% of Union troops would be infected with one or the other before war's end, nearly half the battle injury rate of 17.5%. Combined, that means at any given time, there were almost about 30% of soldiers dealing with one or the other. And that's just the number of reported cases of STIs. It doesn't account for those who didn't know if they had it or didn't say anything at the time. Treatments could put men out of commission for weeks. And so again, having nearly 30% of your men undergoing medical treatment at any given time wasn't the best thing if you were trying to win a battle you know, or win a war. So in summer of 1863, believing the prostitutes to be the source of these infections, Rosencrantz decided to try to deport them. He ordered George Spalding, a provost marshal of Nashville, to literally ship the prostitutes out of the city. Specifically, he requested that they be shipped to Louisville. So Spalding began to oversee the roundup of women. In her piece for the Smithsonian, Sarah Torre shares some of the most glorious quotes about this whole affair. This one is my favorite, and it's about how a number of women tried to evade the effort. A variety of ruses were adopted to avoid being exiled. Among them, the marriage of one of the most notorious of the Cyprians to some scamp. The artful daughter of sin was still compelled to take a birth with her suffering companions, and she is on her way to banishment. This is from the Nashville Daily Press in July of 1863. To be a newspaper reporter in the mid 1800s, <laughs> just that was when to do it. After rounding up 111 of the women and six of their children, Spalding had them shipped to Louisville on a steamboat called the Idaho. Spalding had met the brand new boat's owner, John Newcomb, and was like, oh, cool, you have a boat? Well, I've kidnapped all these sex workers, and I have some of their kids too, and I would love for you to take them up to Louisville. It was, no joke, the boat's maiden voyage, and Newcomb and his crew of three were given enough rations to last them and the passengers to their destination. So in the week it took the Idaho to get to Louisville, The city had caught wind of what was coming their way. City authorities ordered the ship to move on, preventing them from docking. Remember that they only have enough provisions to get to Louisville, but now they have to keep going. And so they go up to Cincinnati. But since they'd also caught wind and they weren't having it because city officials there felt they had all the sex workers they needed, uh, the boat was turned away. So the Idaho lands in Kentucky and things are not great. The women are not welcome there. And it said the military authority granted by Rosencrantz with regard to this mission had been revoked. And so the boat has to go back to Nashville. 
Um, I, I don't know if that revocation was real or they were just like, nope, there's no authority for this. You got to go. Uh, I'd love to know more about what that transaction looked like. But, you know, Newcomb has this boat and he's been ordered to go and do this thing. And uh, it's just full of people who are hungry and dirty. And it's uh, it's not a great scene. So things were rough for the women. They'd been rushed onto the boat and many only had one change of clothes. According to reports at the time, some of the women tried to escape to swim ashore, totally understandably. Some were accused of making contact with enemy forces as a means of arranging to escape. It was not great. Not a good scene. So Newcomb is still out on this ship's maiden voyage for about 28 days. Remember, they had only planned on going out for about a week. So this is about three times longer than they'd intended to be out. He just wants to get it all over with. And so he heads back to Nashville because nobody is taking him and the ship is a total disaster. The mattresses are filthy and they're soiled. He had to spend $4,300, which is the equivalent of just over $90,000 to cover food and medicine for VD, for the women on the boat. For that and damages, he ends up billing the Union Army $5,300, the equivalent of about $112,000 today. He wouldn't get paid until after the war. He had to appeal directly to the Secretary of War himself. He would complain that the boat was so sullied by the reputation of being a, quote, floating whorehouse that she could never endeavor upon the waters again. So that's a thing that happened to John Newcomb. Uh, I am curious to know how he interpreted that whole situation. But uh, they all just end up back in Nashville. So that's how the effort to deport some of Nashville's sex workers went in 1863. It went very, very poorly, which is maybe a little ironic considering the nation up to that point had been a leader in the human trafficking game. And maybe it's all the more ironic that this is taking place in the middle of the Civil War, which is largely about backing away from the practice of trafficking and bondage. But alas... So if a war on sex work wasn't going to work, Rosencrantz had to resort to plan B, which was, drum roll please, legalization. You know, in, in a way, you sort of wish that every public official that's waged a war against some unwinnable concept would resort to legalization in just 30 days uh, and not just wreak havoc. But uh, uh, that is just, that's not what happened uh, uh, for the rest of history. But that's what happened at this time. Spalding crunched the numbers and came up with a system based on existing European models at the time. He suggested each prostitute would register for a $5 license. This would be about $100 today. A doctor would issue weekly examinations for which prostitutes would have to pay 50 cents, about $10 today. Women found to have venereal diseases would be sent to get treatments at a hospital paid for by their licensing fee. Sex workers operating without a license or failing to appear for scheduled examinations would be arrested and jailed for up to 30 days. This was immediately popular with many of the women and by the next year over 350 were licensed. Observations by those close to the operation noted an overall improvement of physical and mental health by those who were licensed. A report by the New York Times noted how the program very nearly paid for itself in full. Um, it also paid for the treatment of uh, men who were faced with VD, the soldiers uh, who were not doing so hot after contracting VD and having to face weeks of treatment. Women were reportedly grateful that they could seek legitimate medical care, which was so much harder to do when they were pushed underground 
They were also eager to use their licenses to show their legitimacy and that they were currently free from infection to their customers. Sadly, the experiment was short-lived. In 1865, the city was no longer controlled by the Union Army, and with it went the system of licensing. It's like how, you know, how the Rockford peaches were just friggin' awesome, and uh, everyone loved them, and uh, people wanted to go see them, and they were able to thrive and make great stuff happen and found sisterhood, at least as it was uh, uh, portrayed in a league of their own. <laughs> and then the friggin' men came back, uh, from the war and it was over for the Rockford Peaches and other baseball teams in that league. Um, that was basically the story of legalized prostitution in Nashville. Uh, it was all pushed back underground and the hospital shut down. The medical care was no longer there. And it's really, I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly sad story that that's what happened because, uh, uh, it was not good for all of the women who had, uh, turned to sex work. So that is the first part of our show. I wish that it had a better ending, but uh, you should know that for about two years, but just under two years, Nashville had a, not just a legalized prostitution situation, but it had a, uh, a system to take care of those who were faced with venereal disease infection as a result. Very cool, cool stuff. It was like universal healthcare, but for sex work. So that's the first part of our show. The second part takes place uh, just about 114 years later. It's not even a full story. It's just three quick anecdotes about the classic cat two, the classic cat for short. The strip club was located on 6th and Broadway, and it was owned by a woman and former dancer named Elizabeth Martin. And for short, I want to know everything about her. I read that at one point she was voted the most fascinating person in Chattanooga, which is quite an honor, though I can't quite tell what body voted for that, but quite an honor nonetheless. Uh, the club opened in 1977, and it closed about 20 years later before Martin opened another club. The classic cat had a long storied history. I hope to go into at another point, including having its original location condemned in 1984 to make way for the incoming convention center and eventually having a multiple year battle with the city to determine whether or not it was too near to the Hume Fogg Magnet School. Okay, so very quickly, not long after it opened, and just so you know, a, a lot of these pieces regarding the classic hat uh, are pulled from reporting from the Tennessean, unless otherwise noted. But so Tennessean reporter Kathleen Gallagher, who later receives a Pulitzer, uh, uh, rightfully so, <laughs> for being an amazing writer, she she reviewed the classic cat's lunch scene, writing, this is just my favorite. Just when most workers elsewhere are reaching into brown bags for peanut butter sandwiches or setting up for hamburgers, the largely male crowd at the classic cat is cheering and applauding a shapely blonde as she gyrates to disco music, revealing everything the law will allow. She swirled and twirled a leopard cape and showed the many aspects of her perfectly formed body. Her dance was graceful, artistic, and definitely good exercise. By the time she reached the finale, no one in the audience doubted that she was a real blonde. So anyway... <laughs> Jesus. In the first part of our lower broad installment, we touched on a robbery that took place at the classic cat. It was very much based on an actual robbery that took place there in the winter of 1983. Actually, I mean, it's not even based there. It was all the details were pulled from this Tennessean piece, which referred to a quote shotgun wielding bandit that came into the cat shortly after two in the morning and then left with a hostage at three 
in that 40 minutes, he robbed around 90 customers and left with about 12 to $14,000 in cash that he took from about 15 of them. The, the math on this uh, over the course of the reportage is a little wonky, but uh, that person left with a lot of money. He took over the DJ stand with his gun in hand and was quoted as saying, I like this. I'm your DJ now, which is just <laughs> the worst Hollywood writing imaginable. He made uh, nude dancers dance without the accompaniment of music, which is just horrifying to think about. And he told everyone to get on the floor and give up their valuables before making one of the bouncers go around and check folks to make sure that they weren't holding back. A bartender kept trying to trigger a silent alarm that supposedly went straight to the police, but they report never having seen or heard the signal. A second bouncer who, again, this if this were Hollywood writing, it would be bad, but this second bouncer's name was Tiny. Uh, Tiny tried to rush the bandit, but tripped on the DJ booth and went down. Finally, an employee's wife called and managed to get the message uh, that the cops needed to be called. And I guess that happened somehow. I can't quite get my mind around a lot of this. Again, uh, some of the reporting is murky, but someone walked into the club while this was all happening and offered themselves up as a hostage, I guess, in the bandit and this new hostage made it out in a Monte Carlo on Broadway before the bandit jumped from the car with the bounty and the hostage got away unharmed. Uh, just, I can't, I can't with this story. Um, uh, someone was, a person of interest was picked up for potential involvement with this uh, later on down the road. Uh, the, the police had put out some information about who they thought was guilty. This person turned themselves in. And then there's not a lot of reporting after that about what happened after the fact. I can't really find any information. And so I don't necessarily feel comfortable naming this person's name uh, just in case uh, it was found that they did not in fact, engage in this. And actually that person who they did name, uh, who gave themselves up because the police were putting their names out into the world. Um, it, it seems like they were later married not long after, maybe five or six years later, as far as I can tell again, by way of reporting from the Tennessean. Okay. So that was that. It is not, however, the most outrageous thing to happen at the storied classic cat. That might well be the time that 200 pounds of explosives were discovered in a truck next to the club. Yes. 200 pounds of explosives. At that time it's reported it was the largest car bomb ever discovered in the United States. This took place on August 30th, 1979. The truck is reported to have been discovered about 20 to 30 minutes before it was supposed to detonate. Arthur Wayne Baldwin, a Memphis-based strip club owner himself, was indicted for the crime as the classic cat was A, considered to be a competitor, and B, owned by his ex-wife. At least one witness said that they'd heard Baldwin discuss plans to blow up the club. Baldwin, who appears to have been in and out of trouble with the law in the 70s, would be a key figure in another amazing Nashville scandal called Clemency for Cash, one that we will uncover and go further into in another episode down the road. He would be indicted for the attempted bombing in 1980, as I said, over a year after the bomb itself was discovered. After a lengthy series of trials that had many twists and turns, Baldwin, who the more I look into him, I realize requires his own episode. He is quite a character, was found guilty of other bombings that were targeting competition in Memphis and Memphis-based clubs. In 1984, five years after it took place, he would plead guilty to charges related to the classic cat incident. Okay, this one is straight up bananas, pardon the pun, but it really is just 
my favorite classic cut story of all time. And I, it, I can't, I can't be better than this AP story. I'm just going to read verbatim because this is quite possibly the best news writing I've read in my entire life. Are you ready? It's, it's better than the strip club lunch review that we heard earlier. Okay. Chimp has night off returns to dancer owner, Nashville, Tennessee. This is an AP piece. As I said, after a footloose night on the town, a fire eating tequila swilling blue jean clad monkey named Pete is back in the arms of his stripper. Pete is part of exotic dancer, Silvia Lesserina's snake and simian act. And the wee hours of Wednesday after Tuesday night's show at the classic cat two, he dashed out of an open door and headed toward downtown trailing his leash. Manager Gary Rook said the three foot 35 pound monkey ran away because Pete's partner, a 75 pound boa constrictor rubbed him the wrong way. La Serena 28 of Mexico city said of the Simeon Thursday, he does this all the time. He's done it before. I've had him for four years. He just pulled his leash and I couldn't get a hold of him. I was holding the snake. But the meandering monkey was returned to the fold Wednesday night. He was way out on the highway, La Serena said. I think he jumped in somebody's car and the guy rolled down the window and he got in. Pete was back in the building for Thursday night shows. <laughs> One thing. So, okay. So all of these stories, like the, the, the prostitute story is ultimately about government sanctioned human trafficking and it's not funny on that level outside of just thinking of that being a part of history not the human trafficking piece but the uh the first of all the fact that the human trafficking happens in the part of the government but it is also just crazy to think that what we did before the obvious thing was just this nuts thing to do. Uh, similarly, this story is really at the end of the day, it's about a monkey doing stuff that monkeys shouldn't be made to do because they're, they're conscious and they're, they are uh, very human like in a lot of ways and they shouldn't be in captivity probably. And they shouldn't do <laughs> terrifying things, but so many things about this story are too wild to fathom and paint a picture of a Nashville in the late seventies that, uh, like what the actual fuck uh this monkey was returned by a guy who in theory he jumped into the car of a whole side drama of this story that i that i don't even get into now or or, or you know i think it's worthwhile but the whole side drama is that the police issued a report after this monkey was was said to be missing saying that they believed it was a hoax in that there is no reason to believe this is true. And they have other things to worry about, which in late seventies, uh, downtown, I imagine the police had a lot of different things to worry about generally, but, uh, they said that this was a hoax. The club manager who's quoted in the story, Gary Rook said it was not at all a hoax. They offered a $1,000 reward for this monkey. And Rook responded to the, the hoax accusation as saying, I'd never offer a thousand dollars if it was a hoax. And they gave this person who returned the monkey in a paper bag. Again, I just, it's what <laughs> they gave this person a thousand dollars for returning Pete, the fire eating tequila swilling blue jean clad monkey. All right, everybody, that's it. 
This has been Nashville Demystified. I'm your host, Alex Seed. It's it's like a it's a companion episode to the Music City Tales from the 1980s miniseries we're running. I want to thank Cameron Davidson for putting this episode together and doing sound-related things. I really appreciate it. I want to thank uh, We Own This Town. Remember to find us on Instagram and Facebook and uh, uh, Twitter. Those are the ones that I would prefer. And, you know, like and subscribe on the internet wherever you listen to things in your ears. Okay, everybody, thank you so much. I hope to talk with you soon.